day, good afternoon, good whenever it is you are listening to this. Thank you very much for listening to this. You are checking out yet another Woke and Big. And today my guest is Eric. And Eric has a 20-year career in people management. He also has a degree in psychology. And that's kind of important when you are using that sort of uh, work and that sort of education to do what we're trying to do today. And what we are trying to do today is give a proper psychological breakdown of Bishop. Bishop is Tupac's character in the film Juice. Eric does his best to provide a diagnosis as well as what those diagnoses mean to the character. And so it required quite a bit of research. So I'm going to give you the quick Wikipedia summary of the film, which, by the way, I have included links to the Wikipedia article, so you can look at it yourself. See, I'm not, like, butchering it up and, you know, trying to make them sound bad or sound good or sound anything else. By the way, very cool note about the character uh, Bishop. It was played by Tupac Shakur, and this was his very first film. And... He does a damn good job, and I think that Eric does a pretty good job of explaining why Tupac did a damn good job in this film. But nonetheless, here is the Wikipedia breakdown of Juice. Juice is a 1992 American crime thriller film directed by Ernest R. Dickerson and written by Dickerson and Gerard Brown. It stars Omar Epps, Tupac Shakur, Jermaine Hopkins, and Khalil Kane. The film touches on the lives of four black youths growing up in Harlem following their day-to-day activities, their struggles with police harassment, rival neighborhood gangs, and their families. The film is the writing and directing debut of Dickerson and features Shakur in his acting debut. The film was shot in New York City, mainly in the Harlem area in 1991. I also wanted to share some cool alien news. And this comes from Complex.com. Classified UFO documents could be released within 180 days thanks to COVID relief bill. It's true. Though you may not have seen it mentioned too many times in this week's headline centered on COVID-19 relief, the increasingly mainstream UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Research Community, has reason to be cautiously excited about the implementation of a tucked away element of the recently signed $2.3 trillion spending bill. With the passing of the aforementioned spending bill, which includes the Intelligence Authorization Act, a 180-day countdown has begun. Included as a committee comment in the Intelligence Authorization Act, the committee directs the Director of National Intelligence, in consultation with the Secretary of Defense and the heads of such other agencies, to submit a report within 180 days of the date of enactment of the Congressional Intelligence and Armed Services Committees on UAPs. 
The report per committee should include a thorough analysis of available data and intelligence reporting on UAPs. Types of potential data specifically mentioned in the documents are geospatial intelligence, signals intelligence, human intelligence, and measures and signals intelligence. Now, if we go back a few weeks and we look at an article that was uh, published in seven days, the Shabbat edition of Israel's largest circulation for pay newspaper, Professor Haim Ashed gave an interview and he said, among other things, that the UFOs have asked not to publish that they are here. Humanity is not ready yet. Trump was on the verge of revealing, but the aliens in the Galactic Federation are saying, wait, let people calm down first. They don't want to start mass hysteria. They want to first make us sane and understanding. They have been waiting for humanity to evolve and reach a stage where we will generally understand what space and spaceships are. There's an agreement between the U.S. government and the aliens. They signed a contract with us to do experiments here, which brings us to the book that I am currently re-listening to, and that book is Alien World Order by Len Kasten. Now, in Alien World Order, Len Kasten makes mention of sort of a galactic federation or empire and goes on to say that the events of the Star Wars series are based on an actual war from long ago that took place very far away and that George Lucas is one of the good guys. Now, I've included links to the articles we've cited in, uh, up to and including... Uh, some of the diagnosis of Bishop in our film today. So I want to say thank you to you for listening. I want to say thank you to uh, my guest, Eric, for stopping by. And I would like to say uh, to thank to thank the staunchest of supporters of this podcast. Uh, Brandon Miller over at Iron Asylum. Iron Asylum is a gym that is located at 35165 KB Drive in lovely Soldotna, Alaska. They're open 24 hours a day, and it's December, so it's starting to get cold outside. You might want to start thinking about hitting a treadmill or hitting a Stairmaster or hitting an elliptical because, like I said, it's getting cold out there, and Uncle Bill does not want you to get hypothermia, and neither does Uncle Brandon. So come in from the cold. Get yourself all hot and sweaty at Iron Asylum. Use one of their new lockers. Talk to Brandon. Get yourself a membership there. Memberships, by the way, right now for a single person are $500. Now, if you've got a family of up to five, $1,500. There you go. Very simple. Boom, boom, boom. Get in. Get a membership. It's a sweet, super sweet-ass deal. All right? Get yourself into the gym. Get yourself into the shape that you want to get yourself into and talk to one of the trainers. They have a plethora of trainers depending on what your goals are. If you want to dial in your squat, you want to dial in your deadlift, you want to figure out what you're doing with kettlebells, you want to figure out uh, what you need to do for yourself to prepare for a triathlon, they've got a trainer there that can work with you. Depending on you know, really whatever your goals are, there is a trainer there that can help you and work with you to get you to the place in your health that you would like to go. That number 907-953-4720. 
mention the podcast to Brandon and get a confused look. Which, by the way, you will not be able to get to see the confused look if you call him because he's over the phone unless you FaceTime him. In which case, that's cool. FaceTime, get a confused look, mention the podcast, see what he says, get yourself a deal at the gym. I'd also like to thank Mark Tyler over at Red Run Cannabis Company. Red Run Cannabis Company are the brewmeisters of Hashade. They also make canna caps, they make honey sticks, and peanut butter. Now, if you're looking for their actual physical spot, Red Run Cannabis Company is located on the Keen Iceberg Highway. This is essentially like an outlet store for all of the Red Run products. You can go in there, you can get their canna caps, you can get their honey sticks, you can get some special deals on Hashade that you're only going to get from the Red Run retail operation. Now, you can get Red Run products all over the great state of Alaska. All of your finer dispensaries are are going to carry Red Run products. You can go to Weed Maps and you can see who carries what, which is a beautiful feature of Weed Maps. They are the best app on the planet if you are over the age of 21 and looking to shop for some recreational or medicinal cannabis. Check out Weed Maps. But if you are looking specifically for Red Run products, I'd say RedRunCannabisCompany.com. Also a fantastic website for all of their information. Now today is Wednesday, so I feel almost obligated to mention that it is pre-roll Wednesday at their physical location. You go into their uh, their physical location, get yourself a pre-roll, and it is at least a dollar off. So ask your bud tender for their recommendations or suggestions. Uh, for myself, I got something called Jelly Milk milk jelly it was it's it sounds like if you were going to combine the two things as a food it would be disgusting however as a pre-roll it was fantastic it came from uh from the fine folks over at bob so if you think that bob is growing some fantastic devil's lettuce that is a deviled, le- a deviled lettuce. Not not like a deviled egg or anything, but devil's lettuce. And that is a pre-roll that I would recommend. I would recommend taking your sweet ass into Red Run Cannabis Company located on the Keen Iceberg Highway and getting yourself one of those sweet ass pre-rolls. All right, Hashade and other Red Run products are available at fire dispensaries in the great state of Alaska. Thank you for hanging out with me. By the way, check out the YouTube channel. I will include a link to the YouTube channel also in the description because I am posting up the videos of our interviews so that you can see what I look like and you can see what my guest looks like. All right, there you go. Boom, boom shakalaka, as uh, they would say in NBA Jam. All right, have a great day. Get out there, kick today's ass. Do not let it kick yours. And more than anything, have fun because if you're not having fun, then what's the point? Also, for my local jujitsu people, 10th Planet Soldatna is back up and swinging. Classes are Monday through Thursday at 7 p.m. They've got kids' classes that run concurrent to the adult classes, so if you've got kids, you can train with them. Classes are led by 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu Black Belt Curtis Hembroff, and coming up at the end of January, Alaska's Baddest Blue. More to follow later on. I... I can be Raheem and and Bishop and all them, and you can be uh, the Puerto Rican gang. What was his name? Lazarus or something? I, I don't remember. I don't think they. I, the, I'm sure they. The, the crew had a name, but I don't remember what the specific dude's name was. I thought he was Italian the first time I watched it. I had no idea what he was until I watched it again this past week. So. For those of you at home who have no idea what this is that we are talking about, 
It is J-U, Ice, 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 not like the DJ, but like the movie starring Tupac Shakur. Now, according to Wikipedia, and this is where it, could, where it gets really interesting, is uh, well, the movie came out in 1992, but there's a lot of really interesting backstory to the movie and how it came to be. But according to Wikipedia, Juice is a 1992 American crime thriller directed by Ernest R. Dickinson, or I'm sorry, Dickerson, and written by Dickerson and Gerard Brown. It stars Omar Epps, Tupac Shakur, Jermaine Hopkins, and Khalil Kane. The film touches on the lives of four black youths growing up in Harlem following their day-to-day activities, their struggles with police harassment, rival neighborhood gangs, and their families. The film is the writing and directing debut of Dickerson and features Shakur in his acting debut. The film was shot in New York City, mainly in the Harlem area in 1991. Now, there's a lot going on in the plot here. There's a lot going on in the film. But we're kind of here to talk about one specific character in the film. And that specific character is the character Bishop portrayed by young Tupac Shakur. Now, um, Eric, you have a long career in personnel management. You have a degree in psychology. Um, this is something that you, you've, I, you're familiar with people. Yes. Okay. Uh, and that was kind of the reason, um, I wanted to talk to you about this film. Now, I'm going to talk to some other folks later on down the road about this film, but that was one of the reasons I wanted to uh, to speak to you because you, A, know people, and you're degreed in knowing people. All right. So um, you want me to begin? Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love you to. All right. Well, first, you know, when I first started talking to you about this, a few different things came up while watching uh, Bishop. Tupac's character and his actions. First, I thought, you know, maybe uh, he was suffering possibly from bipolar one uh, disorder, possibly onset early stages of schizophrenia. And that's pretty much where I was going with it. But I watched it again the other day, maybe two days ago, this morning, yesterday. I don't know. I have no concept of time. But I watched it from a different angle. I was looking at what motivated Bishop. And if you pay attention, early in the movie, after a blizzard or lizard robs and gets shot up at the bar, okay. he starts saying things like he's tired of running. He's, we run from the police. We run from that other gang. We run from everybody. It's enough time to stop running. Let's stand up for ourselves kind of thing. It's time we take back our power. You know, something along those lines. And that's when him and uh, Q first got into their verbal altercation that we see as the viewer. Yeah. So I started watching it, and I started paying more attention. And I thought of also the title of the movie, Juice, which at that time was slang for power or respect. So I was looking at what motivated uh, Bishop. It was all his desire for power. So I went and I started re-looking into things such as uh, narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, what is it called? Give me one second. I'm going to pull up my notes. That's okay. 
I appreciate that you you took notes, uh, and I appreciate you taking the time to watch the film multiple times to to try and and give a diagnosis to someone who really only gives you about forty five minutes of screen time. Okay, the other thing which goes along with uh, narciss narcissistic personality disorder is something called megaloma megalom- megalomania. Okay, which is um, very similar. But a lot of times with uh, narcissistics, they are more about like a self-image of how they look, things of that nature, where like somebody with uh, megalomania, they want more power. You know, like all megalomaniacs are narcissists, but not all narcissists are megalomaniacs if you do like a Venn diagram. Okay. Um, Does that make sense? I think so. Uh, I, I think so. If you want to go into further detail, by all means. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go more into his power for, or his desire for the power. Okay. Um, yeah. One, look at the environment he's in. You know, he's harassed daily by uh, that, that Puerto Rican gang or the, the guy and his crew. I don't know if they were all Puerto Ricans or what. Tretch was in there. Tretch was in the other crew. Oh, was he? Okay. He was. So, I mean, here's the thing. They were, they were like, life sucks, but life sucks for us together. Right. So, you know, Bishop was getting harassed there. We don't know much of his upbringing. We know something is wrong with his father. Um, that one guy mentioned something about being raped in prison, Bishop's father being raped in prison. So he could be suffering from PTSD. But the few 10 seconds you get in the whole movie of his father – He's just staring at a television, blank, expressionless face, no movement, doesn't speak. And his mom is cooking or grandma's cooking breakfast and Bishop slides the money into his father's pocket. His father doesn't move. He just has a TV on. He's just staring. So we don't know if there's other factors that could be biological from his father. You know, was his father suffering from any mental illnesses? Is his father medicated or is his father just gone because of his past experiences? You know, he's at the right age, could have been a former Vietnam vet. And a lot of people did not come back from that too well mentally. And then where he's growing up, put in the environmental factors, you know, being an African-American in Harlem in 70s, 80s, early 90s. He's struggling anyhow, but on top of the fact of is whatever else going on, jail time, you know, it's not a good addition. So, yeah, he, another thing that, that I had never um, really considered. So his father was a Vietnam vet. His father had done time. Well, assuming. Okay. Assuming he's a Vietnam vet. Oh, I'm sorry. His father is. We vet. don't know for sure because it's not depicted. But his father was possibly a possible. Okay. No, um, his father did jail. That's the only thing we know. That's the only thing we know. Okay. I'm assuming based on where they're living, the time frame, and I'm trying to guess what is wrong with his father. Yeah. There's because there's and I'm guessing based off his age, he's possibly a Vietnam vet, as a lot of people were at that time frame, especially poor individuals. 
So, uh, for for reference time period movies, also check out Dead Press. Um, uh, Dead Presidents. You check out the music of Dead Press, though. Have a blast. Um, but um, going back to um, to the the character of Bishop, um, you have you're you're going to have I'm assuming some early childhood trauma uh, associated with with I mean just growing up in that environment. Um, so, so we're talking about megalomania. We're talking about Bishop coming from, um, not, uh, definitely not from a position of power in, in, in his life, um, as a, as a young man. And he now has some means to kind of defend himself. Well, if you're also watching early in the movie, when, uh, Blizzard or Lizard robs that, goes to rob that, uh, bar, yeah. Or and Q walks out and says, Man, I told him I wanted no part of this. You saw Bishop wanted to go in there. He wanted that money. He wanted the power of having something in his control, in his grasp. And he was upset with Q over the fact that Q took him away from him. Um and then <clears throat> we'll see here. You see that he's wanting power early on when he's upset with Q for not letting him rob that bar with them and then they're back at Steele's house i think it's Steele's house okay he makes that horrible omelet and they're all kind of talking and that's when tupac goes we run from everybody you know we run from the police it's all about respect in order to get respect you gotta earn respect or some take respect something along those lines i didn't write down the exact quote and then he even mentioned something to, um, I believe it, he said it to Q, it may have been to uh, Raheem, where he's like, are you ready to die for it? When talking about respect at one point in time. Yeah. So that's another reason why I'm going more with like megalomania, because he's willing to die for what he feels is important. And what's most important to him is respect. I mean, even the name of the movie, Juice. Um, You'll see he goes through slight little outbursts here and there. Usually anger when things aren't going his way, which means he he does not have control. You know, when Q stood up to him in Steele's apartment, they're ready to completely throw down at that point in time. That's the first time you can really tell something is different with um, Bishop than the rest of the people in their their group. You know, Raheem breaks him up, takes uh, Bishop to the corner, and Q's just standing there. And this goes back towards what we were talking about earlier with the upbringing of not having much, where Raheem's like, look, we are family. We're not just brothers, we're family. You know, let's squash everything get back to how things should be and they kind of shake hands again so right there it kind of shows the home life of some of these people especially like bishop who had really nothing he was you kind of guess he was somewhat raising himself and all he had was his family which is why a lot of people obviously join gangs at some point in time for a sense of belonging something else do you have a hologram behind you or something 
I do. So, okay, I, I, I thought I was hallucinating or something. <laughs> it's uh, it's kind of Snake Plissken. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it can be pretty trippy. Um, <laughs> I should have said no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Didn't mean to go off topic there, but it was Whoa. freaking me out. Then after they kind of separate everything. The, the guys are all kind of doing their own thing. You know, they're hustling at the pool hall, everything else. And <clears throat> if you listen to things that Bishop says early on, he's always trying to put himself up above the other people, even amongst his own crew. And, you know, you kind of look at it the way he was uh, ragging on Steel early in the movie. Huh. You know, mm-hmm. calling him... Uh, can't remember. The, basically, he was masturbating. I can't remember the term. He what the some like leather hands or something weird like that. And he's always downplaying a lot of other people with his demeaning tone, like he did with uh, Radimus. Yeah. I think it was Radimus. Kept calling like Puerto Rican, using all kinds of different racial slurs there. Even trying to speak Spanish to him with insulting terms, questioning the guy's sexuality. <clears throat> Then eventually, as the movie progresses, they get the idea that they're going to rob the, li- the liquor store. Uh, yeah, it was kind of like a, like a corner bodega. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they decide they're going to do that. But one of the first things you realize once this plan is hatched, who has control of the gun? Bishop. Bishop. Even though Raheem's the one that got it, Bishop still ends with it. Which, who has the gun is the man with the power or whoever has powers man with the gun, however you want to word it. They decide, they go in there, they rob the store. Now here's where I kind of have somewhat of an idea possibly of other possible diagnosis with um, Bishop. Okay. It's because he starts showing traits that could go to other avenues, such as possible delusions. Because when he shoots the bodega owner, right? Yeah. What was his excuse for it? Do you recall? He said he was going for a gun or something. Yeah, he made a move and he knew who he was, were his quotes. Yeah. You know, he made a move. He knew who he was. Okay, right there, that's that could either be paranoia or delusions, because none of the other people, none of the other three saw that. Only Bishop saw it. But it could also be argued he took the guy's life to show he had complete power. You know, this is where psychology gets a little tricky. It's all in, you know, it's not like uh, other types of doctoring where you take blood, you tell somebody has cancer just by looking at blood cells. It's, with psychology, it's um, kind of how do you view it what characteristics does a person portray and you pretty much have to do process of elimination you know it's as good as we have but it's not as simple as just looking at a blood slide i saw one point in time i think it was seven different doctors i had nine different diagnoses so that kind of lets you know how it can be based on what a person is portraying and what a doctor is more familiar with 
goes more towards what they can, what they will diagnose. Their mental building blocks are the things that are uh, controlling their view of a of an individual's mental health. Right, because with it comes to diagnosing somebody, there's a a big book about this big, probably about one hundred twenty, hundred fifty dollars, called the Diag- Diagnostics Diagnostics of Statistics for Medicine, the DSM. Okay. They're now currently on volume five, which came out, I think, in 2013. They're mm-hmm. always making updates to it. Now, I don't have that kind of money, so I couldn't pull out the book itself. I had to go through some of the notes from classes, which we used the uh, volume four for a lot of things. And you need to meet certain criteria in order to uh, get that label, so to speak. And I hate that term, label. To get that diagnosed. Okay. I think I lost you for a second. I got to take a bite of the sandwich while it's warm. It looks good. If, let me pull up my notes. Are you still there? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Okay. You're still there, William. Oh, what you eating? Um, my bride brought me in a sandwich with cream cheese, and it's nice. It's warm. I like a warm sandwich. I have cheese. Cheese is good. I mean, you're like in a part of the country right. where there's good cheese. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm surrounded by the Amish. I got ducks. I've got pretty good eggs. Yeah, I like to feed ducks. All right, well, let me get back on to what Please. I was saying with the DSM. Okay, so for, and I mainly focused mainly on the uh, narcissistic personality personality disorder okay you need to have five of nine standards in order to be diagnosed with uh, narcissistic personality disorder here are uh, five things i saw bishop exhibit throughout the movie grandiose logic of self-importance you can kind of get hints of that when he's watching that movie when they're at Steele's house where He's talking about taking destiny and make, taking it in their own hands. When he's talking about that guy that's like fighting all the police in it, that black and white movie. Yeah. And a desire for, for unwarranted admiration. He always wanted to be the man. He wanted to be in charge. You can kind of see it by the way he took the gun. Now, they all, any viewer can tell Raheem was pretty much their leader. But Bishop led them as far as getting into trouble with other people. A sense of entitlement. You kind of see that because after he kills his friend Raheem, first thing he does, well, when they all decide to run away, he reaches in and takes Raheem's share of the money, even though Raheem's still alive. Interpersonally oppressive behavior. He exhibits that, as I mentioned earlier, when he kept talking down on everybody, especially with Radimus. And as far as Steele, even says a few things to Q later on in the movie. And he really had no form of empathy, which gets shown when they're, um, especially at Bishop's funeral or the wake. You know, he's just there in the background. He's not with Q. He's not with Steele. And when he goes there and he's saying his apologies to, I uh, can't remember if it was the sister or the mom of um, 
Rahim, but his eyes are focused on Q. So his body language isn't representative of what the words are that are coming out. He's just giving her lip service. Body language, basically shooting a warning to Q, kind of shows that where he had no empathy. He didn't mourn the loss of his friend. He blamed Rahim getting shot on Rahim. You know, he even does something like, uh, you know, I told him not to grab the gun, pushing all the blame back on Rahim. Yeah, just because he didn't want to give up the gun. He didn't want to give up the power. Rahim goes to grab the weapon. He shoots Rahim. Rahim goes down. First thing he does, he starts pushing all the blame on Rahim. And he didn't want to give up control. And control is kind of a big thing as I rewatched it again. You see little things. I, I, I liked what the director did is after Steele gets shot, if you recall, and Q goes up and sees the ambulance and sees Steele getting loaded. And the cops start chasing Q through the streets of Harlem. They pan up, and on the rooftop, you see Bishop looking down, kind of like a puppeteer orchestrating, controlling the destiny, as he did earlier in the, as he said he wanted to do, control his own destiny. New York City during that time period, um, I mean, I, I wasn't there. I didn't see it, but apparently it sucked a lot. Um <laughs> Apparently it was lots of fun and it sucked a lot. Uh, we got some really great music. We got some really great art, but all of that really great stuff uh, typically comes from misery. Right. I mean, if you look at world history, you know, you got the uh, Renaissance, the rebirth right after the dark ages mm -hmm. period of complete misery. And all of a sudden an explosion of, mainly in the arts. And that's kind of what you're referring to as far as New York. I mean, you you had all kinds of great groups coming up music-wise and then movies like this portraying what life was like in that neighborhood. And if you get back to his father, and this is for all the main four main characters that we see, there isn't one positive male role model for any of them. The best one is possibly uh, Samuel Jackson's character, the the owner of the pool hall. And I wouldn't really say he was a positive role model, but he was a role model. He at least had a business. Yeah, and he made money. And he wasn't in trouble with the law that we know of. That we know of. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Q was a good role model to his baby brother. But none of the main four main characters had that role model male influence in their life because they didn't go to school that often which is shown by when q can remember the combination to his locker um and that, i think that is also how that hold on one sec hey bill this is winnie hi winnie how you doing sweetie but i think that's also kind of how the environment of those type of neighborhoods were back in the late 80s, early 90s, and possibly even today. You know, I can't speak of it since I, I'm not living there, but that's how a lot of those places were. There wasn't a lot of ma positive male influence. 
I think that that's um, one of the things that makes this film so eternal is that that's always been a thing. Yes. You know, there's, there's always been uh, large swaths of people where there's, um, there's not a complete family. There's a, there's not a male role model. There's, there are things missing that um, we know statistically. And I, I don't even know that it necessarily has to be a male role. It just needs to be uh, two role, role models. The, the, it, you know, covering it at both ends because raising a child for, by yourself has got to be tough as a mother lover. Right. Um, Cause it's, it's, it can be tough as tough as hell with, with two people. Um, so, you know, like I can, I can only imagine um, as, as a parent, I can only imagine. Um, Hold on one second. I'm getting back to something you were saying there. Please you do. mentioned, you know, two role models, right? Yeah. Now I want you to take a trip back. 30 years ago, be in one of the roughest neighborhoods. Two female role models aren't going to be that good for uh, a male team at that time frame. I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, that's and I'm just weird. going based on sociologically as far as uh, fighting everything else, because then you know, in today's society, it's okay to be gay. The '90s, it wasn't as okay. It wasn't accepted as much, especially in a place like Harlem, for a, a teenage boy. You know, so if you look at the sociological aspect of it, in that time frame, and I'm dating myself here. Yeah. Um, I I would disagree with the t- just two role models for that time frame in today's society. I agree with you 30 years ago in Harlem. No, you probably didn't see it nearly as often. Um, the, the point I was, I was applying, and this is where my mistake was. I was applying uh, modern, uh, modern parenting to a film that takes place in 1992. So you, you're, you're absolutely right. I don't think there were too many, um, uh, too many gay couples raising kids uh, anywhere. Um, certainly not nearly as many as uh, as we're seeing uh, now. It's much more it's much more commonplace, and happy people don't shoot up movie theaters. So, um, nonetheless, like I was applying today and to 1992, and so that was my that was a mistake on my part. Um, but going back to um, what you don't see in the movie. I mean, I mean, I think it plays into other films like don't be a menace to South central while drinking your juice in the hood. When she says <laughs> you, you know, there are no good, strong female role models in these films. And, and it's like, yeah, there's that, but there's, but there's also not a lot of strong uh, male role models uh, either. But in juice was in that case, uh, a very specific case of no strong role models. Right. I mean, there was, like I said, the best role model was probably Q. That's to his baby brother. Outside of Q, Raheem had a good thing, kind of, probably had the best future, I thought, between the four, the four main characters. Raheem seemed to have a level head on his shoulder, got shot by, or he messed up by trusting Bishop. So, what do you think? Bishop wouldn't shoot him. What do you think of the movie? Um, 
first impressions, I mean, what you remember from the movie the first time you saw it versus what you take away from it now? As far as juice? Yeah. Um, when I first saw it, God, I was, what, 16, 17-year-old from Madison, Ohio. So it's a different lifestyle. You know, and I don't remember if that came out first or if Boys in the Hood or Menace came out first, which, you know, but I liked all the movies because it gave me a glimpse into a life I wasn't privy of and to see how things were. But I looked at more of the entertainment value back then as far as uh, just, you know, one guy going crazy in movie juice and trying to get away from it or the other one trying to survive the craziness of his buddy. And now when I watch it, I look at a lot of other things as far as how, what kind of detail did the director get into? You know, he did things, like I mentioned, that thing where he's up on top of the roof looking down. And my favorite scene in the whole movie is uh, not much going on, but it's when they're in the elevator. And you have Bishop staring at uh, Q. Not a word being said. I just love how they filmed that. You could feel the tension. That's how good the acting was with the nonverbals between these two people. You know, they were able to look at each other. And then he's like, what are you going to do? You're going to shoot me in an in elevator full of people? And then that's when that chase goes on to end the movie. I didn't realize until I put food in that you hate chewing, but I also remembered it was specifically gum. Mainly gum, yes. Which is another reason why I started studying psychology. Um, I, uh, I've fallen into the rabbit hole of B-movies. That's, um, if I'm up in the middle of the night, then that's, uh, that's the rabbit hole I may go down. I have a recommendation for you. What you got? It's called Midnight Madness. It has a young Michael J. Fox in there and a lot of side actors that you've seen through tons of movies of the eighties, but it's basically a big scavenger hunt, right? Yeah. And there's four or five teams. You have a team of jocks, the nerds, the, the casual people, the fat women, and they're all going all across town trying to win the scavenger hunt. So it's kind of like a uh, cannonball run meets 80 stereotypes meets um, you remember the movie with Cuba Gooding Jr. where they're racing across the world? Rat Pack. Rat Race. Almost like that, but you have groups of four or five and I don't remember what the ultimate prize is. It's really stupid and great movie. Midnight Man. I'll send you a text of what it's called later. I'll include a link down at the bottom. I'll include a link down in the description. So if you're at home listening to this, you're going to be like, oh, what is that that weird movie that dude was talking about? That was that. And I'll throw one back at you. It's on um, – last I checked, it was on Tubi. That's T-U-B-I. Uh, also uh, free movies. Miami Connection. We, uh, we've reviewed it on the podcast. It is – the only way I can describe it is like it's it's almost a lost footage movie. Like um, I, I'm sure you've you've seen the Blair Witch Project, but this is an actual lost footage movie 
in that the film was recorded in uh, the fo- film was filmed in from 19, I believe it was 1985 to 1987 at a cost of uh, about a million dollars in change in, uh, in mid eighties money um, by one of the stars of the film, a guy that owned a Taekwondo school. And, and there's a lot going on in this film in that the, the badass fighter that's the good guy is uh, a Taekwondo instructor who's in a rock band that plays songs about fighting ninjas. And then they fight ninjas who are Japanese. And there's a whole other subtext. And I'm trying to get a buddy of mine on to kind of explain um, the background of tension between the Japanese and the Koreans and how that may have played a fight in picking the ninjas to get their asses kicked in the movie by a Taekwondo guy. Well, if you want the history of the Koreans and the Japanese, all you got to do is go back to uh, about the 30s, maybe the 20s of 1900s with the something Sinu War. I can't remember the, what war it was, but there's a lot going on with Japanese all through Asia pre-World War II that our American history textbooks don't teach much about. Yeah. And that would give you a very good understanding for a beginning of where to look at for hatred between those two uh, countries and the people involved. So for me, that was the cool thing about this movie. There was um, like something extra. There was a, there was, there was an extra subtext. There's a whole other subplot that we're not going to get because uh, we're not in on the, we, we don't understand the music. You know what I'm saying? Like the way we don't get the way they're dancing because we're hearing the music differently. Um, because all we're hearing is a riff. We're not hearing some, uh, everything else. The second Sino Japanese war, it started in uh, the mid thirties. So a few years before world war two began. So that that give you a good background if you have time and you want to research some random information. And the only reason I know that is I did live in Korea for almost five years. So I learned a little bit about their history. So that was the that was a subplot that was missed on a lot of people in this movie Miami Connection. Fast forward to um, 2010s. Uh, somewhere in there, an employee of the Alamo Draft House is cruising eBay. Uh, the Alamo Draft House, for those of you that are not familiar, there's a, like a confused look on your face there. Uh, the Alamo Draft House yeah. is a of uh, movie theaters out of Austin, Texas, um, that um, play really cool movies, and they also serve beer. They were among the first to do it. Um, okay. Um, but so it's the Alamo Draft House. Uh, but on Wednesday, they do what's called Weird Wednesday, where they show weird movies. Now, before you go to the when you go to the movies at Alamo Draft House, they'll show you fifteen or twenty minutes of movie trailers from movies that came out in the seventies that no one has ever heard of, like the greatest shit ever. But Weird Wednesday is where they show really strange movies, and one of their employees was cruising eBay and came across a fifty dollar uh, copy of this film. 
They ended up buying the rights for it so they could distribute the movie because it was such a hit at Weird Wednesday. Um, and when the the guy that directed the film, the guy that sunk all the money into it, the Taekwondo instructor got the phone call that someone wanted to buy the rights to the movie. He didn't believe it. But yeah, this is a real lost film uh, challenge. So shout out to Take Havoc uh, for putting me onto that one. It was a fun, fun movie to watch. And I recommend that to everybody. And it's kind of family appropriate. And there's a weird family element. There's a lot going on in this movie, man. There's it's in Miami connection is like the movie juice and that there's so many subplots and so many characters and relationships that you have to take into account, you know, their perspective and how they see the world and how they got to where they are. The movie's not nearly as good as juice. I need, I need to say that it looks great. It's a terrible movie, Um, but there's, but there's a lot going on. So I think that that's pretty cool. Um, overall, would you recommend Juice uh, for people who are interested in the human condition or, or wondering why people react the way they do? Oh, yes. I definitely would recommend it to a lot of people. Um, when I used to talk to one of my professors at Lake Erie College, sometimes I'd just recommend different movies because uh, one of the things we had to do for uh, a final was choose a character. It could be a real person. It could be uh, somebody from a movie or a TV show and create a diagnosis of that person based on what you've seen. Now, I wish I'd go back in time and I could have done it more on Bishop, but I chose somebody completely different. But I would recommend it to her to show her class if they're trying to see, you know, when we start talking about, uh, what was that, um, you know, are you a product of your environment or you is your environment a product of you? That'd be a good movie to kind of start with when you're looking at how things are. Uh, one last note before I, because I, I hear the family doing family stuff. Um, <laughs> special ed of I Got It Made fame is the guy who, um, uh, Kane, um, Kane's baby mother gets in the car with. Really? And if you're and if you're at home watching this on YouTube, by the time you watch it, that'll Hold be. Hold on, you that, said Kane's baby mom. Not Kane. Not Kane. That's that's. I'm getting. You, you went to the wrong movie. I went totally to the wrong movie. You met Raheem. 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 Was it Raheem? I'm sure it was Raheem. Yeah, it's Ra- Raheem's baby's mom went into a red car with some guy. Yep, yep, that was it. Raheem, not Kane. Not Kane. Um, so when I... Also, another thing to remind you of the date of uh, when Juice came out, so we don't think of today's values back then. The first pair of shoes that um, Q goes to try on are a pair of Reebok pumps. And I don't even think they make them anymore, unfortunately. I believe they make them as sort of like a retro sneaker. Okay, but they're not what they were. No, but how stupid was that? You paid an extra 50 or 60 bucks for a little fucking basketball pump in the tongue of your shoe? That's all the <laughs> fucking did. Like it, it, and it 
boosted around the space. Sometimes you maybe if you spent extra money, you got the one where it inflated around your your stupid foot. What was the point of that? Like I kind of understand having an, an air sole, but I don't under, I what the fuck does that do? Just make a better tongue. What do I give a shit? If you put, if you made a cool little fucking basketball that I can press on, or a, t- a tennis ball that I can press on, who gives a shit? I liked. I never owned a pair, and I think that's why I like them. I um, I was a big fan of the uh, the Hirachis, the Air uh, the Air Hirachis. Um, I don't even know if they were Airs, but I loved them. They were the coolest shoes in the world. And then I got a pair, and it was like, oh, these are socks. Um, <laughs> Super comfortable. I'm not knocking them by any means, but yeah, um, it's it's always different when you get your hands on them. Like the Nike uh, Nike made a dunk, a De La Soul dunk, and I was like, oh, "That's super cool. I got to get the De La Soul dunks." When I finally got my hands on them, I, I got the feel of them, and I saw the texture of them. I was like, "These are fucking ugly." I was really- I've been wearing the same sneakers since 1990. Samba Classics. Can't go wrong with them. As per 3AAC 306.360, Alaska Marijuana Control Board Cannabis Use Warning A. Marijuana has intoxicating effects and may be habit-forming and addictive. B. Marijuana impairs concentration, coordination, and judgment. Do not operate a vehicle or machinery under its influence. C. There are health risks associated with consumption of marijuana. D, for use by adults 21 and older, keep out of the reach of children, and E, marijuana should not be used by women who are pregnant or breastfeeding.